0: for DEI Education. Daniel Sims, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, John. It's
0: great to be here. It is a pleasure to be with you. You're joining us from Wisconsin. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and more specifically, a new model for DEI education that you've been working on and working with organizations and leaders. As we get started, I wanted to share Daniel's bio with everybody. Daniel Sims is the founder and CEO of Daniel Sims Consulting Group where he connects data-driven DEI strategies to organizations seeking transformational system change. Daniel has nearly 15 years of experience in fundraising, coaching, strategic planning, and DEI education. He has managed over 140 campaigns, trainings, and strategic plans, raising over 425 million and training over 5,000 stakeholders. Daniel also believes in giving back to his community through board service. He has served on several local, national, and international boards and committees, including the Access Community Health Centers, the Association of fundraising professionals, community empowerment network, and as board president of BOSS, Building Opportunities for Student Success, an organization dedicated to connecting students of color with internship opportunities in architecture and design. Daniel holds a Master of Public Service from the University of Arkansas Clinton School of Public Service, is a certified development and nonprofit executive, and is a member of Forbes The Culture, Mm -hmm. He resides in Madison, Wisconsin with his wife and collaborator, Althea, two children, Andrea and Seth, and family dog, Kobe Biscuit. I love it. (laughs) Love it. Awesome. Wonderful uh, to be with you. Anything else you would like to share with me or my audience by way of your background or personal context before we dive on into the conversation?
1: Yes, um, I also love uh, Magic the Gathering, um, and it actually plays a big role in my work. Cause it's a card game by uh, Wizards hmm. of the Coast, owned by Hasbro, and I use a lot of, uh, you know, allegories and stories of that in my trainings and my writings, and so I am always like to throw that in. Oh, super interesting. I, I'm not familiar with that,
0: um, but that sounds super fun, and I think it's always great to be able to connect uh, to those sorts of things when we're uh, doing trainings with people. Wonderful. Well, why don't we start... Um, with you sharing a little bit of a background around what led you to develop a new model towards DEI education. Now, of course, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the acronym has changed over the years, the focus has changed over the years. Um, but, you know, the conversations have been happening for a really long time. And in the current iteration, you know, I, I see a lot of positive things, but I also see some gaps and some limitations to what, people have been doing, what leaders have been trying to accomplish, and how organizations have been caring for their DEI efforts. So tell us a little bit about your uh, what, what's led to your development of this new DEI education model.
1: Um, it was really, a, I would call it a perfect storm of working with groups across the spectrum of the services um, I provide, whether it be fundraising, campaign management, strategic planning, on ways to bring more voices to the table. Um and I found a fairly consistent theme throughout that people wanted to add voices to spaces that weren't equipped to hear those voices, You know, honor the opinions, thoughts of those voices, and then actually memorialize policies and systems and processes based on what they're learning. And so as I looked at what I understand about how we build process to create you know, succinct and crisp, cult- programmatic cultures, mission-driven cultures. What I found was that we approach DEI from a place of expansion. We have a big. We want to be a big tent so that everyone can be in a space. But very seldom, and it's and it's incre and the conversation is changing now. People are not always thinking about how that applies to the how we do the work, once people and voices and experiences that are different from our own are present in these organizations. So I looked back to data. How do we actually quantify where an organization is in terms of their mastery of uh, JEDI? And I I use justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion um, in my work. Um, but as you mentioned, there's DEIB, DEIA, and you know, and several others that are all working towards that same end game. But I wanted to take you know, data from both, you know, conversations, but also from you know surveys and things and and data points within organizations to say between the 100 and the 500 level, for example, if, you know, if it's the 100 level with mastery and understanding, you know, you're very basic, you need a lot of support. Very few people are at that five hundred level where they've got it all figured out. I can really take the charge. but you know the the gap is in that two to three hundred. What are the what are the ways that conversations need to change within workplaces? How do we consistently provide safe spaces to surface what we believe and what our values are, both personally and professionally? And then translate that into programmatic change that works that last and is also measurable, so that we're continuing this iterative design thinking based um you know change to keep organizations in front of any challenge that could you know threaten the type of work they want to do by limiting the number of people and the number of experiences that we allow.
0: I like the idea of being able to to be as inclusive, to bring voices around the table, uh, to to involve people, um, but that also we need to get beyond those, just the conversations and we need to move uh, to, to greater levels of influence and impact and, and systemized approaches to, to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, if you're using the JEDI model or whatever, you know, acronym you're using. Uh, so tell us a little bit more specifically about, how the model uh, works, how it can be used to transform program development and evaluation within teams and within organizations.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, the uh, Allen-Zim's model, um, as we call it, uh, has kind of four quadrants that you know, work um, in in uh, in concert with one another. Um, we start at the discovery phase, um, very much with you know assessment. Based tools um, we use a tool called Mosaic um, that's essentially a battery of six different um, evaluations coming from um, you know personal experiences in the workplace through one-on-one interviews or surveys all the way to how we're looking at salaries and other types of you know HR driven um, data points uh, that we use that data then to translate our you know Jedi assessment score where we then curate what are the specific types of educational and program management needs um, an organization needs to focus on um, in the understanding phase? So we create safe spaces to facilitate people understanding language, people understanding how their roles within an organization um, are imbued with or should be guided by DEI values and largely showing that DEI values and value systems most value systems that are centered in, you know, civility and goodness align much more than usually the social or political discourse of the day um, allow them to prove. Um, I think that's a good way to a good way to say that. Um, so we're taking the information that we're learning in those uh, in those training courses and then working with, you know, the strategic plans and other guiding documents to say, based on what we're finding, what are the specific planks of program life or HR or other quadrants within the organization that need change. And So then using all of this data that we're continuing to gather almost in real time, we're then able to provide recommendations on how we change pay structure what does it look like to change the recruitment standard, but then also provide, for example, mentorship and other types of wraparound support when we bring people into organizations? Um, we then, you know, at the end call it, You know, it's not really an end game because it's a continual, iterative process. But you know, we come to a place of cultural reckoning. We take all of the information we do, and then we offer the mosaic, to, um, you know, battery of assessments again. Um, at the end. So usually we're six months or a year, sometimes more um, into the process, and we can then demonstrate in a data-driven way the change that we've seen in the systems and in the people that are managing those systems. And it also then allows us to surface other issues or potential issues that can continue to be worked on using the model. Yeah, and
0: that assessment is so vital um, in ongoing evaluation and Uh, just thoughtful reflection on, on what's working and what's not working. And perhaps uh, what have you found as you've worked with organizations using this evaluation and assessment tool um, and, and helping them as they're trying to improve uh, their, their JEDI or DEI efforts? uh, What have been some of the biggest gaps that you've been able to identify uh, through the use of the tool?
1: A few um, immediately uh, jump to mind. The, First thing that we saw is that people, and, and this is why we, we tend to use the language that we use, that people feel that they didn't have the space to fail and learn how to change language and in terms of having conversations and how we interact with people um, in the workplace. And so, you know, the way that we approach our, our training, um, you know, my, my wife comes from an education um background and a social work background. And so when we're working together, um, we have the tools and structures in place to create therapeutic like space so that people can feel safe asking questions that seem hard or saying things that seem hard and that there's a level of appreciation for that. And there's a direct correlation between that appreciation and how, you know, social environments and workplaces change from the initial mosaic, um, application to our um, end application. Um, A second thing that we find more often than not is that organizations have struggled to align DEI priorities in their organic strategic plans. Um, And so we provide language and, and strategies to make DEI part of all the, the natural direction that a company or an organization is heading in. Um, I can, I'm sure you can Google any number of of places right now that have a standard strategic plan and then a DEI specific plan that makes it a lot easier to, to be frank, ignore or not um, focus on or invest in as heavily. Um, and so by holding you know, an organization and its leadership accountable by looking at how we're integrating the values and the beliefs that an organization agrees on through this process, um, it has uh, increased exponentially um, the amount of long-term DEI investment and in programming that we see um, from organizations that we've worked with. Um, so those are those are probably some of the biggies that um,
0: we continue yeah. to find yeah both of those are very consistent with all the conversations i'm having with leaders and organizations and when i when i think about that second one uh specifically uh around man just making sure that there's alignment between the overall organizational strategic pillars and our efforts uh in the inclusion space uh that so often is is very much lacking uh so so finding that alignment is going to be really important as a really as first step towards uh, dismantling structures of oppression and and being able to to create the mechanisms, the structures, the systems that are actually going to promote true justice and equity uh, and opportunities for inclusion and belonging uh, within every organization, with every team, and that really feeds into that first point you made. You know, just making sure that everyone feels safe. To be part of the team, part of the conversation, um, part you know that they can be in the process of learning and developing and growing as they go, because that is one of the big challenges in this space. You know, I'm a, a straight cisgender white dude. Uh, I feel like I, you know, am fairly up to speed on these topics and the language and all that kind of stuff. And I'm I certainly try to be an ally, but I I recognize my privilege and I recognize, um, you know that. On the one hand, I I can't leave the work to to others, but you know, on the one hand, I can't leave the work to others, but on the other hand, it's also not my place, p- perhaps to to be the voice, um, and I need to give other people, um, you know, the opportunity to have their voice be heard and shared, and and that sometimes is a tightrope to walk, and it, it can be challenging, and sometimes I mess up, and I I just don't do it in the most effective way. And, and I, I would say that as, you know, someone, I think I'm, I'm fairly, uh, attuned and aware of, of the issues and you get other people who are really well intentioned, but they just, they're, they're not particularly conversant. They're not experienced uh, in this space. It can be really intimidating for people to want to wait in and to try because they just feel like they're going to get labeled. They're going to get, um, you know, and there's going to be all these negative impacts for them. So they'd rather just stay quiet and, and let others do the work. And so that's, that's the wrestle. I think that's the tension in the space that we have to try to overcome by creating psychologically safe spaces where people can learn and grow uh, and where we, we, um, we celebrate that right over time.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and and so much of the work um, that's happening, you know, we have this, uh, this tendency to want to race towards the explicit apparent change that can be seen publicly uh, without as you said really creating the place of, of psychological safety um, that's necessary to to delve in, into these topics that are hard and multi-generational and uh, and gutter and visceral and guttural for um, <clears throat> for some um, and And so for me, you know, if if you start at the, you know, the structural change level, as you said, you know, you want to be able to change the the resource flows and your policies and your practices, but more importantly, without understanding, you know, I'm in a psychologically safe space to process and to trans and to learn, can you then take on, you know, power um, dynamics and the connections and, and the mental, you know, various mental models um, that then, you know, take us from the want to have this explicit thing kind of drive our identity in this work versus the implicit transformative change that is necessary for the long-term, uh, you know, global impact that one wants to make.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And and again, this is a challenging and fraught space. I'm, I'm curious, you know, what motivates you and keeps you inspired to keep going with the work uh, to keep pressing forward despite the challenges. And frankly, despite the, often the setbacks, um, I think it's been a pretty turbulent time over the last few years. I I think back, I mean, there's, there's been ongoing challenges and issues to be sure, but you know, if you go back to the early days of the pandemic, for example, and we think about the summer of 2020, what Mm -hmm. an incredibly challenging time. I, I, I can't even imagine, um, how, uh, people, uh, of color, we're, we're functioning and dealing with, um, uh, with the social upheaval and the challenges around the George Floyd moment, for example. That's just one example of like a, a gazillion. Uh, it's been a really challenging time. So what keeps you inspired and motivated in this space, even amidst those challenges?
1: That's a great question. Um thank you for, for that. Um I definitely look back at you know the, the the summer of of 2020 and particularly in Madison um the things that we saw um, here as as protest and teach-ins and things were happening. Um I think that actually really gave me the the second wind that I needed. Um most of the of the protests we had very few um you know violent uh, interactions between protesters and police compared to other cities. Um but most of the work were, was led by you know young black and brown young uh, you know, <clears throat> black and brown Madisonians who wanted to you know to pick up the mantle for change. And so watching you know middle schoolers and high schoolers and young adults really be front and center of how the community tackled this conversation because in Madison, um, like uh, like many places um, that are you know quote unquote progressive, we we struggle um, with our external identity of being you know a quote unquote progressive diverse city, and how the power dynamics and, and connections um, prevent that from our, from benefiting. People of color and others from disadvantaged communities. So I think watching their motivation and their intention um, really helped, and I continue to look to them as a resource. Um, I also have do a lot of of self care. I believe I'm, I follow uh, the Nat Ministry, uh, which is a very popular, uh, you know, justice driven um, rest um, team or organization that talks about rest is power, rest is uh, restorative, but rest is an act of courage and justice and and we deserve it. And so um, I I try to take time away. Um, And then, you know, mental health um, resources also help to keep the balance because you you have to be able to do the work but also care for yourself in a way that all of the information and the stories and and the trauma that you're absorbing in the course of that work doesn't negatively affect everything else you do in your life my family my friends my other work so what have you
0: yeah we definitely need to be practicing self-care uh making sure that we're putting our mental physical emotional spiritual intellectual health you know at the forefront uh, and, and really taking care of of those needs, and, and focusing not just on ourselves and that self-care, but also, you know, if we're a leader, making sure that we're recognizing those needs um, in our, the members of our team, uh, so that we can encourage them to also practice that self-care, and we can provide the space for them, the opportunity for them to do that. Uh, equally important. As we get close to wrapping up today, uh, perhaps we can uh, end off the conversation by just talking a little bit more about what people often get wrong or misunderstand about this work in diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, belonging. Uh, what do people misunderstand? What are they getting wrong? And how can we reframe it for people in a way that will resonate and make sense so that
1: we can carry the work forward? Um, one I, I mentioned earlier is that uh, you know DEI work is you know contrary to popular belief. Not the sole responsibility of of HR leaders, as is the case in, in many organizations. Um, um, McKinsey, um, and Company did a uh, did some research on workplace diversity um, with SHRM um, a couple of years ago, and you know saw that there was this wild this wide gap um, in you know performance, but also in how you know. DEI resources are then allocated um, to departments and the the large uh, discrepancies that there are there. Um, Most importantly, um, you know, it's, DEI diversity is not primarily about race and genders and, or just underrepresented group, um, employee groups. Um, We need to be able to understand it, and walk in these values across the spectrum of diversity, including culture, socioeconomic status, um, religion, political perspective. Um, disability uh, is one that I'm doing a lot more advocacy for, um, and also that it's not a fad. Um, you know, this is not something that's going away. It is, they are values that in, in, we live out in myriad ways, but the work that organizations do and that we do in ourselves is about coming to shared understandings and shared definitions of what those values mean and and what walking in them or, or living in them means um, in any number of contexts. Um, and so, you know, looking at all that and knowing that, you know, there is a vast return on investment when you do this work, uh, you know, we want to be able to keep organizations running effectively. We want lower turnover. We want increased satisfaction. We want all of that. And we also want to, you know, look at, you know, risk reduction um, and business compliance pieces too. But when you look at all this together, you're you're creating opportunities to help the people that work for you and with you do their work well. And that's the goal for many businesses and organizations. So doing this can only help increase the efficacy uh, of any team or organization. And, you know, there's no reason not to start.
0: Yeah, well said, Daniel, it has just been a real pleasure. I know at the time, I need to let you go here in just a few minutes. But before we wrap things up for today, I wanted to give you a chance to share with my audience how they can connect with you find out more about your work, your team, and then give us the final word on the topic for today
1: absolutely um if, i would love for folks to join our mailing list um, at simsconsultinggroup.com um, you could reach out to us um, for you know for speaking um, engagements um, free consultations on things that uh, might be happening in your organization um, at info at um and we and we and follow us on linkedin um, every other friday um i do a, um, a a newsletter called transformation in progress um we took a bit of a hiatus this summer, but we'll be we're starting back this fall with a a number of new uh, topics that we want to share about various aspects of of DEI leadership and uh, and self care um, that we think are important. Um, and as far as the final word, i um, you know, I think that as I reflect on you know the the 15 almost 15 years of work that I've done in this space, um, the thing that I find most interesting. Um, from the many trainings and uh, you know, sessions that I've done is that we don't give our society and people within it the opportunity to let their ability to learn and change shine enough. You know, DEI is working in a lot of avenues um, and there, while there's still a lot of work to do, some of the Some of the change that I've seen you know in individuals in various training environments um really reinforces for me the the power of learning on changing minds and changing attitudes and giving folks the appropriate space to confront things that we are taught that are wrong or untrue or or half true and in, in whatever case they might be. And seeing that marked change in how they walk, how they listen, how they respond um, is is something that you know, if not, if only for that, it, it makes going on this journey worth the uh, worth the investment um, and the time. And you know and so I hope that folks reflect on that and think about how that looks for them, and we're here to help uh, you know, navigate that with you if uh, if and when the time comes.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure. I encourage my audience to reach out, to get connected, find out more about what Daniel and his team can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page, and please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level.